to Judge Cats. This is episode number 57. With me, as always, my two lovely co-hosts. First off, we got Jess Dunks. Hey, everybody, this is Jess. Woo! And we also got Brian Perlman. Ain't nobody got time for introductions. Let's get started. Ain't nobody got time for Ain't that. Ain't nobody got time for that. This is our pre-release spectacular, where we're going to go over all the new mechanics that are in uh, Gate Crash. Yes, Gate Crash. Yes, no, Gate Dragon's Maze. That's the special preview. I almost called it Return of Ravnica, and I was like, no, that's not right. No. You could have just run with it. Like, maybe people wonder if they were listening to our old episode. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, this is episode 43. We're going to be talking about Return to Ravnica. <laughs> Today we're going to Return to Ravnica again. Ooh. <laughs> R-R-T-R. Or yeah. R-T-R-T-R. So we got no news or anything crazy like that to talk about. We're just going to dive right into all five of the new mechanics. I'll start with one of my favorite ones from the new set, Extort, which is the Orzhov ability. Uh, Extort is just basically a triggered ability. It says whenever you cast a spell, you may pay a hybrid white-black. If you do, each opponent loses one life, and you gain life equal to the total life lost this way. So, what's cool about Extort? A, if something happens to get Extort on it multiple times, that matters. It'll trigger. Uh, having multiple creatures with Extort matters, because once again, you will. Uh, if you cast a spell, you'll have a three Extort trigger, so you can pay three mana and have your opponent lose one, three life and you gain three life total. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about extorts, extorts pretty straightforward. Like it's not too exciting. It's not too, uh, that's the exciting. other thing about it's yeah. the thing is straightforward. It's straightforward is that you gain life. <laughs> Anything is it's boring. You gain life equal to the life lost, which is, uh, it's a little weird because so if you're in a multiplayer game and you extort and I have like three opponents, I can pay the mana. Each opponent loses one life. I end up gaining three life. That's pretty sweet. But also if your opponent has something like Platinum Imperion out, which says that life totals can't change, they will not lose any life. So you won't gain any life. Do you, do you remember the old card? And it was, this was in, this was an Orzov card, but I think it was called Agent of Masks. No. Okay, so it was it was a two two or was a two three human advisor. At the beginning of your upkeep, each opponent loses one life, and you gain life. You gain life equal to the life lost this way. Oh. That was in that was in a uh, guild pack. Do you think they were foreshadowing? Yes, they yes knew. they knew. <laughs> They knew. Uh, scars or the Mirrodin block had foreshadowing to scars and Mirrodin, so it's not that great. No, I don't. I don't actually think it had foreshadowing. I think they went back into everything they could find and said, "Is there anything in here that could be viewed as foreshadowing?" And then they ran with it. The books actually mention the oil being left in Mirrodin. Oh, well, they they it's said it's what in, corrupted uh, the Mirari and made him or corrupted Mimnark. They said in um, the articles when they did the return to Ravnica that they knew that they were going to come back, so they intentionally seeded the story with a you know the the whole like you know the the end scene of the the sci-fi movie where you find out that the big bad guy's not really gone kind of thing <laughs> for Ravnica or Mirrodin? Uh, for Mirrodin. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, another thing about extort, so it doesn't actually, it doesn't count when you cast that spell, like when you cast the spell with extort. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, well, I'll just pay the extra, you know, the extra one white and boom. And you don't have the option of if you've only got one creature with extort and then you play a spell, you can't like, oh, I've got three white available. Take three. Yeah. yeah. Like that only works with black mana. I'm kidding. It doesn't work at all. Shade extort. And I suppose we should mention that uh, an extort, a mono white extort card, can be played in a mono white EDH deck. This is true. There was some question about that, but the rules text of a card with extort is just the word extort. The reminder right. text doesn't count. The, the re- reminder text does not affect color identity. Yes. Otherwise, otherwise, older printings of certain cards. 
like uh, is it Trinisphere? I think that that, oh, mentions, that has a black mana symbol in its reminder text, or the newer version of Trinisphere rather that has a black uh, mana symbol in its reminder text could only be played in black decks, and that just doesn't make sense. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so who wants to tackle the big daddy? I think the the more complicated mechanic. The cipher. Cipher. Cipher is awesome. I'm I'm a huge fan of the cipher mechanic. Yeah. Uh, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of all of the cards that cipher is on. Yeah. But I think the mechanic is awesome. Well, there's dragon phase uh, too, you know. Right. That's probably not going to happen. But <laughs> let's talk about cipher for a minute because of well how awesome it could have been. Um, and no, actually, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's uh, cipher is only on instant and sorceries. First of all, there will never be a creature with cipher, and if there is, it won't matter. It's uh, you know, basically cipher. Whenever you cast a spell with cipher, it uh, does whatever it is going to do, and then the last part of its ability uh, or of its resolution is the cipher ability, which removes it from the game, encoded on a creature you control. And encoded is basically like imprinting. It becomes. You can think of it like it becomes imprinted on this other creature. In fact, I don't even know why they didn't just use the word imprint. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, was that? probably imprint's just a little too broad, I guess. I mean, yeah, maybe I, I don't know because imprint, blood rush is just imprinting. Channel. Normally means that the that the card that is the card the imprinted card like has some sort of relevance or changes some attributes. You know, to the, to the card that's with the print ability, like maybe it gains protection or can make copies. Well, make copies. Yes, yeah, Ice Conceptor makes copies. So like this also makes, I guess yeah, the same yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, anyway, so, so what this does is, uh, now this creature that has this card encoded on it, the creature gains the ability whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, you may copy this card and you may cast the copy without paying its mana cost. Now this means a couple of things. First of all, it means that the creature is gaining this ability. So if the creature somehow loses all of its abilities and then deals combat damage, it, it won't play the spell. And the second thing is that you're actually creating the copy and then playing it. You're actually playing it. It's not just putting a copy on the stack. So this this can be affected by things that, if, that, that care about how many spells you cast a turn, such as the storm mechanic, or you're playing with it either. So, what's that? Or extort. Or, or extort in the set, which yeah. is relevant. Or if, whether you're playing with... Oh, crap. I forgot to get something else. Because CJ interrupted me. Anyway, so... Uh, Cypher, no swiping. What? No. It was a door in the Explorer joke. I have kids. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't. So why did you think we Cypher, would get that? no swiping. Come on. I, how would I get it? I've never seen an episode of my life. You you are obviously, obviously just too old, Brian. It's on television now. Right. But you have kids. It has never been on my television. Uh, you know what? Back to it. Back to Cypher. Also, also, you still have a TV. Well, have what? Like, you, you have cable? Like I have cable. Really? Yeah, I don't understand. Oh, all right, all right. Like, the internet is a thing. Um, anyway, so cipher. Yeah, it's my favorite mechanic because there's so much you can do with it. There are cards that do everything that can have cipher, and you could encode them on the creature. They they smack your opponent in the face, and then they add insult to injury by by casting another spell. I call it the insult to injury mechanic. Um, I just decided that. This is I just made it up just. Now. <laughs> and uh, it's it's interesting because ways things can interact with it, such as flashback. Do you mind if I go into that right now, CJ? I know sure. it's, uh, you're playing a little bit later, but it's, so flashback and cipher. So if I manage to get a card with cipher into my graveyard by uh, milling it, or if I cast it and it was countered, uh, or something along those lines, then what will end up happening is that I can cast it again with Snapcaster Mage, uh, which is very common in this format, unfortunately. Uh, standard, I mean. And 
So people will play Snapcaster Mage, target their cipher card, and then they play it. Well, now they want to know whether it can be ciphered because it's going to be exiled because of cipher, but also exiled because of flashback. So they want to know, well, what happens here? And flashback has a little bit, it's, it's provider text, it's actually a little bit misleading. Yeah. Because the way flashback works is that you exile the, the spell, uh, if it would go to any zone other than the exile zone. So when you're, when you're casting a card with cipher, it's gonna get exiled anyway. So flashback doesn't care. It goes, oh, you're in the exile zone? Feel free. You're and, already going there. You're good. Yeah. You're fine. I don't need to worry about you. It lets it go to the exile zone, and it will be encoded on the creature. Flashback doesn't affect that. Cypher cards that with flashback works very favorably. does exactly what you want it to do. Yeah, that's nice. So, so, so the old, see, you know, I'll let you just take the next part. You know, you want to talk about how it works with phasing, then... Uh... No, no, no. We got an email about that. That's a, that's a tease for everyone. Listen to the email section. We're not going to talk about that right now. Uh, I did want to mention though that the uh the the text that lets you exile the cipher card it's it's as if it's part of the the text of the card right it's as if it had this line of you know you can you may exile this card blah blah, blah. so if the cipher card gets countered or perhaps maybe it has a target and the target becomes illegal which would also make it get countered that doesn't happen so you're not going to be able to encode the card yeah exactly also, a question I saw a few times was about, do you get to encode the copies of the cards that you cast? No, no, Which, no, no. I don't know how ridiculous people think Cypher is. It's when, you're, when you're, you can only encode an actual card, and yes. copies of cards aren't cards. And I, it actually says in like the full readout ability, it's just like, if this spell is represented by a card, then you may exile it. So you can't you can't do nothing with uh with the copies as far as ciphering goes or encoding goes. Well, talk about one other thing too. What happens if you don't cast the spell? What if it, what if maybe it doesn't have a legal target or something along those lines? So the copy is created in exile and then cast from exile. Yes. So if you mm-hmm. don't, it just kind of stays in exile for forever. Wait, no, that's not right. That doesn't seem right. There's this that that doesn't make sense because then you just have all these copies sitting out there. Surely the game would be smarter about cleaning up its garbage than that. Maybe maybe we could have a rule about some kind of action <laughs> that you take based on the state of the game. Perhaps, maybe. So, state-based actions, clean it up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's weird, because Cypher has like a double may. It says you may copy it, and then also you may cast it. Cast the copy. So so you can, you can, uh, yeah, that is actually really weird. You can, so you can copy it. So I will, I will choose to make a copy and then choose not to cast it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the, I think the, the first, this is weird. I think the first may is, is kind of like you can make the choice as to whether or not to do something. And then the second may is more of like, how do you, how do you say, I, I, I mean, maybe they can say you can cast this copy. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it's not like the magic terms may, it's just. It's, it, maybe, maybe the second may is less of the magic term may and more of a, uh, a permissive. It's like, Hey, this is something you can do now. I see what you're saying. Or, or you're allowed to do this now. Mother may I? Yes, you may. So some last. To wrap up uh, Cypher here, one thing is encoding on a creature doesn't target, so you don't have to choose a target for encode when you put the spell on the stack, or for Cypher. So if the card itself is making, like, a token, you will, will be able to encode onto that token. Yeah. 
And if you got if you got multiple creatures, they they uh, and you go cast the spell with cipher, then they can't like hope bolt bolt the dude you're gonna you know haha you don't get yeah. the cipher. I just killed your guy that you were gonna cipher. It's like well no, it's it's on resolution. You know they can't bolt your dude and and get rid of it because you can just slide it on another guy. And then finally, um, changing control of a creature doesn't remove the encoding in any way, shape, or form. So if your opponent takes your creature, swings at you with him, and it deals damage to you, your opponent gets to cast whatever spell is encoded on it. Yes. So, sucks to be you. Just don't let them happen. Kill your opponent before they get to steal your creatures. Yes. Cypher, no swiping. Okay. Who wants to take the incredibly complicated blood rush mechanic? I'll take blood rush. Okay. Okay. It does what the cards say. No. Okay. So Blood Rush is basically, it's a girl mechanic. You pay some amount of mana. Did you say it was a girl mechanic? Yes. I thought you did too. I I swear that's what you said. It's a girl mechanic. Oh. Girl. It's a girl. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's gruel. 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 Yeah, like listening to you is grueling. Gruel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you so much. a long episode. (laughs) I hate you. This is this is why we make fun of Judge Cast North is so that we don't make fun of each other. Yeah, we can't be unleashed on each yeah, other. I know. We need to go back. At least so. this is the last set. Yeah, sorry, my bad. Anyway, anyway, okay. So blood <laughs> rush, blood, blood rush is it's first off, it's an ability word, so it it has no meaning. Like it, it it's it really serves just to group a bunch of cards together that do similar things to tie them together thematically. But what Blood Rush basically groups together is uh, an ability that I guess it's all on creatures, right? Yeah, it's on creatures uh, so far. You pay, you pay some amount of mana and discard the card, and target attacking creature gets some sort of power and toughness bonus, and maybe an additional ability. It it, it seems like if the if the creature itself is like a a four four trample, then when you blood rush it, the target attacking creature will get plus four plus four and trample. Um, that's that's not necessarily you know on every card. So read what the card does. Don't just assume. Yeah. Um. The the cool things about blood rush or the cool things but the relevant things about blood rush it is it does target it does target an attacking creature it doesn't have to be your attacking creature if for some reason you want to blood rush your opponent's creatures or you're playing two-headed giant you want to blood rush your teammates that's fine uh creatures are attacking until the end of combat so you can for whatever reason blood rush after combat damage, immediately after. It could be relevant in modern. Maybe you're trying to kill a phantasmal image or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's see here. It's be modern playable, I'm sure. And if anybody can't tell, it's sarcasm. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing else. Blood Rush. That's uh, Blood Rush. Pretty straightforward. Blood Rush does whatever it says on the card. Like, yeah. That's, there's actually no, like, rules thing that we really need to know other than it's not actually, uh, like, an ability. It's just reminding you, hey, there's this ability written on this card. To, to... This is similar to other things. Like? Like Blood Rush. You were trying to yeah, say. So, technically, so creatures don't, like, you can't make a creature gain Blood Rush. It doesn't have Blood Rush. It has pay these, get these effects. It's an activated ability that you can use in your hand, but it's not a keyword ability, right? Oh. So, that's really all you need to know about, about Blood Rush. What else is. One of the uh, uh, ability words. You, you even highlighted it. You really want us to segue into this. I didn't do it. Just did. I think. I think. No, that I think was me. I was reading it and highlighted it. Segways have evolved, CJ. <laughs> 
You know what? I, I do want to talk about Evolve. I'm a big fan of Evolve, so I'm going to talk about that, and then we'll come back to Battalion, you ruiners. Oh. So, okay. Evolve... Because we, we were going to evolve into a Battalion. See that? Kind of... <laughs> One become many. It's evolution. Evolve means... So, it's just a triggered ability, and it says, whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, if that creature's power is greater than this creature's power, and or that creature's toughness is greater than this creature's toughness, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. So, if I have a 2-2 two, two with Evolve, and I play a 2-3, my 2-2 two, two with Evolve will get a plus one, plus one counter. So, the, the one thing to note is that you're checking the power to the power of the new creature, or you're checking the toughness to the toughness of the new creature. You're not checking power to toughness or vice versa. This It only applies to um, creatures that are entering the battlefield under your control. When I first read it, I thought it was all creatures, right? Because it made sense to me that if I have a 2-2 with Evolve and you play a hill giant, my guy gets bigger to kind of beef up and get ready for him. But unfortunately, that is not the case. It's it's only creatures on your side. And then finally, Evolve has a little um, a quirk, a trigger Uh-oh. quirk that's called intervening ifs. And that means if the trigger condition isn't met, if the if portion of the trigger condition isn't met, the trigger never triggers. So what does that mean? Once again, let's go back to my 2-2 with Evolve, because I love that guy. Even though I don't think one exists. But anyway, I have a 2-2 with Evolve, and I play a 1-1. Since the uh, power is not greater than my 2-2 and the toughness is not greater than my 2-2, the Evolve does not trigger at all. So there's no opportunity for it to trigger and then like maybe I giant growth my guy and um, and get it or anything like that. Uh, so... Versed to that, if uh, so, if you if you pump if you pump your dude before the trigger resolves, uh, well, there it didn't trigger, so there is no before the trigger resolves. Right. Right. So you might get it. Your previous, you might have players asking, well, judge, this doesn't have a toughness or a power greater than this guy, but if I giant growth it in response to the trigger, will it work? And the answer yeah. is no, because it didn't trigger. Yeah. It never there's did. nothing to respond to. Right. Yeah. Some, something else with the, the intervening if clause. If, let's say I have a 2-2 with evolve and I use like some cool card that puts like two, three threes into play. Yes. Okay. So my 2-2, my 2-2 with evolve is going to trigger twice. Horse is a course, by the way. Uh, sure. It's gonna trigger twice. It's gonna trigger twice. For each, once each for the, for the three threes entering the battlefield. All right. So the first one's going to happen and my 2-2 is going to go up to a 3-3. And then when the second one goes to happen, the, the intervening if clause, since it's checked both when the trigger event happens and when the trigger tries to resolve, it's going to ask, hey, is this creature's power greater or its toughness greater? And it's going to get no that it's the same. Mm-hmm. And then the trigger is just going to do nothing. So your, so, your hopes of, your hopes of having a 2-2 playing two 3-3s. And getting a 4-4 out of it? No, you're just going to have to be happy with your 3-3. <sighs> I have a question for you. It's actually a two-parter. Um, so if you have a creature with, with a ball, uh, let's say you have a 1-1 creature with a ball, and you play a 2-2 after that, and in response to the evolve trigger, I lightning bolt your 2-2, and it dies. What happens? And does the same thing happen if I dismember your 2-2 instead of, instead of lightning bolt? Ha ha. So, yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Okay. So, if you bolt it, it's going to use, uh, so in either way, if the creature, if the creature's gone, it's going to use last known information. Okay. So, the three, uh, was it a three three or a two two? We had a one one creature with a ball and a two two creature entering play. Okay. Okay. So, the, the two two creature that comes into play, if it gets bolted and leaves, um, then we're going to use last known information. Hey, it was a two two. Uh, evolve's going to happen. If you use dismember last known information, even though the end result is the creatures both died, we're still going to use last known information. In this case, it's a minus three, minus three. So evolve's going to go no. 
Well, it's uh, minus five, minus five, actually, but you are correct. Well, it was a two-two, and it got minus five, minus five, so it became a minus. Oh, three, it's minus totally three. minus three. I thought you were saying just number gives it minus three, minus three. No, no, yeah, you're right, correct. It's total power enough. This would be minus three, minus three. The last time it existed on the battlefield, so it's not going to, like you said, it's not going to do that. Do the thing with the stuff. Uh, <laughs> do the thing with the stuff. That's a, that's that's a legitimate thing. Yeah. Judge, Bell, Judge, 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 I'm playing. I'm playing a spinning needle. Can I name the the? I want to name the the card that does the thing. CJ, can I be the episode name? Mm. Geek Crash Mechanics doing the thing with the stuff. All right, maybe. I like it. I like it. Oh, and I guess we should mention that if something somehow gets evolved multiple times, each one would trigger separately, but it still runs into the issue that uh, Brian said, where, same thing, if you have a 2-2 and you play 3-3, yeah, you're going to get two evolved triggers, but only one of them is going to do anything. But if it's got two evolved triggers, and it's a 2-2, and you play a 4-4... Yes. Oh, it's going to be a 4-4. All right. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's anything that can do that, make something double evolve. But if it comes in Dragon's Maze... Double evolve. Double. It's, 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 it is Pokemon. It's, it's D-ball. Double D-ball. D-ball. All right. Battalion. Uh, yay, Battalion. Listen, okay, real quick. Battalion's an ability word. It means whenever, uh, this creature and at least, or I'm sorry, yeah, and two other creatures attack, do something. So, once again, all of these cards will have exactly what they do written on them. <laughs> Jess is correcting my spelling of Battalion while I'm talking. <laughs> Biddleallion, yeah. Yeah, look at him. Look, it's happening right now. So anyway. Battle Lion. Thanks, Google Docs, for showing me this. So all that matters here is that the three creatures, including one with battalion, are declared as attackers. It doesn't matter if they are still attacking when the trigger resolves. The trigger it also, oh, go ahead. It, yeah, it, I was going to say, it also it doesn't matter that they're, whether or not they're attacking. Like, if it was put into play attacking, it won't trigger either. Correct. Yeah, yeah, there, there are older cards that could do that. So, and that's really, that's really the only quirk to it. So if I'm attacking with three guys, one of them has battalion. Yeah, turn them sideways. Yeah, I turn them sideways. sideways. Uh, the battalion trigger on the stack, you kill one. It doesn't mean anything. The battalion trigger is still going to resolve. Okay. So there's the mechanics. First off, are you, are you guys going to be running pre-releases or do you get to, are you going to be playing in any of them? I have <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. Yeah, it sounds like you don't get to, Jess. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm scheduled, uh, let me think here. I'm going to end up working something like 40 hours just over the three days. All right. Well, let me, let me rephrase this. Awesome. If you got, Hopefully I'm going to play. If you could play in a pre-release, which, which guild would you choose? I mean, probably Orzov. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Boros, but I really think, you know, Orzov is, is pretty much the way to go in this format. And the reason I say that is because I think that uh, not only are there some really good bobs at Orzov, but um, when games tend to go really slow and grindy, which they do in a, a new sealed format, uh, these creatures that let you, you know, turn every spell into a lightning helix later in the game tend to be really good. Yeah. Yeah. And then Orzov v. Orzov is going to be miserable. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I would play Orzov. I hope no one else plays Orzov because it will make everything the time. Correct. I lightning helix you for three. No, no, no. I lightning helix you for three. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> Brian, do you do you like Orzov or who do you like? If if I was able to to do any pre-releasing this weekend, I would be totally all up in that Simic. Yes, and that that's where I am too. Because but, that's that's funner than. Yeah. 
the misery game Jess wants to play. <laughs> well, the other thing I could do would be Boros, you know, just so I could play with a shock trooper. And because I, I really just want to play him and tell people that I'm attacking with a ball lightning helix. Yeah, ball lightning helix. I heard that. I thought that was clever. The, the thing with Simic is it, green and blue aren't exactly known for their powerful removal cards. So a little nervous about that. Really? Are, are you sure? Yes, pretty sure. Uh, my pre-reg number so far for my events show me Boros is going to be the most popular guild by far. Wow. Uh, and then Gruul, unsurprisingly, is the least popular. Yeah, no one ever likes Gruul. Yeah, Gruul seems bad. Also, Gruul Charm is extremely disappointing. Now, that's, that's interesting because I remember when, I mean, red-green seems to be a very popular choice amongst n- newer... Oh, don't get me wrong. Everybody wants a stopping ground. Yeah. But, but nobody likes rule. Actually, most of our newer players want to play white, so they're in the, the Orzov Boros thing. Okay, so where I thought we'd go from here is we would just talk about cards that we found interesting from the FAQ, go over anything interesting rules-wise about them, and then wrap this bad boy up. And I thought it'd be cool to talk about all five of the pre-release promos, but then I actually looked at all five of the pre-release promos, and most of them are not very interesting rules-wise. So I only want to talk about one, which is my girl Fathom Mage, the Simic pre-release promo. She has Evolve, yep. and then she also has this, uh, whenever a plus one plus one counter is placed on Fathom Mage, you may draw a card, which is, seems pretty sweet. So what's interesting about her is uh, there are cards in this set and cards throughout Magic that could have her enter the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter. If that happens, she actually does get to draw a card, and that's that's due to the uh, the wonky definition of placed in Magic. Like, placed means have a counter placed on it or enters the battlefield with a counter placed on it. So what if it enters the battlefield with two counters on it? Do you get to draw two cards? I legitimately don't know the answer to that. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, you, you do. Okay. And I, I, I'm Somebody's going to come correct me now that I said that and be like, no, it doesn't work that way, and here's why. No, but, no, uh, no. I just double-checked. I'm pretty I sure that whenever, pretty whenever, sure. whenever counters are played versus whenever a plus one, I mean, it's... Whenever it's blocked by a creature versus whenever it's blocked. Wasn't that the combo at the Community Cup with Jace, Architect of Thought, doubling season, and they would, like, they'd play the Jace, and he'd be at eight counters, and they'd ultimate him, and they'd get another Jace, and they'd keep chaining these? Yeah. It was it was awesome. Yeah. All right, so, once again, I thought we'd talk about all five guild mages, but uh, the Boros guild mage is just... Hey, I'm going to make dudes and make your dudes bigger, and that's kind of boring. He's not really rules interesting. But the other four do have uh, interesting rules-wise. And the most interesting one, in my opinion, is Dust Mental Guildmates, the Demir one. So he reads, uh, one blue-black, whenever a card is put in an opponent's graveyard from anywhere this turn, that player loses one life. And two blue-black, target player puts the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. So first important thing is it says a card from is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere. So it's not just milling. You know, combat damage, everything, discard, everything that puts a card into a graveyard will trigger that ability if you use it. And secondly, if you use the ability twice, it's going to trigger multiple times for each card that goes in the graveyard. So if Yeah, there are people trying to combo this with, with Jace, uh, the five mana Jace. The, the one that mills 10? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that though. And uh, I guess it, it's only when a card is put in from uh, from anywhere. It doesn't uh, if a token bites it, or a or a copy of a cipher yes. spell. There you go. And and while we're on the topic of that, let's go ahead and talk about the Vizcopa Guild Mage and Zamek Guild Mage because they actually have a very similar thing. The relevant ability on Vizcopa Guild Mage, the Orzov one, is whenever you gain life this turn, each opponent loses that much life. 
And the relevant wording on the Zamrat Guild Mage is uh, this turn, each creature you control enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, both of those work the exact same way. If you activate them multiple times, you will get their effects multiple times. So if you activate Zamrat Guild Mage twice, your creatures will enter the battlefield with two plus one, plus one counters. Well, hey, hey. Um, if you if you get if you activate your Scar Guild Mage multiple times to give creatures you control trample until end of turn, yes, you can you can give them multiple instances of trample. That's true. You could. You yes, can. Multiple, it's multiple instances of trample are redundant. Yes. The, the difference you, here is <laughs> this is cruel, mind you. Multiple instances of trample is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> This creature has trample 80 times, which is a thing you used to do. I used to do this with, uh, with, uh, Soulbright Flamekin in Lorowin drafts. You just give the same creature trample a bunch of times to set off his ability and get a bunch of mana. Okay. No, because he has an ability that gives creatures trample, and then when you, when you, the third time it resolves, you get like eight mana. Okay. So uh, you, you give creatures trample multiple times. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> It was also a draft. Also, Scarred Guild Mage, since Brian just brought him up, he has an ability, target land you control becomes a 4-4 elemental creature until end of turn, still land. Uh, the relevant thing here is if you play the land this turn, normally we don't care about summoning sickness on lands, but if you play the land this turn and then make it a creature, it actually can't attack or tap for mana anymore because it's affected by summoning sickness. Yeah, so be sure the land that you just played, be sure to use it for one of the uh, mana to activate Scarred Guild Mage's yes. ability. You know. If you only got four. Um, another cool thing about that is if that land you control somehow gets hit with something that makes it like minus two, minus two, and you want to just get a four, four again, you can just use that ability again. No. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that, hasn't, that hasn't worked in quite some time. No, 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 no. When I said make it a two, two, sorry. That's clearly yeah. that it not gives it minus two, minus two. Is that what I said? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Makes it a 2-2. Two, two. Okay, so if something happens to make it a 2-2. And Brian punts it really far. I know. Wow. No, okay. what I meant was something makes it a 2-2. Two, two. Yeah. Um, yeah. So actually, what's really interesting about that, if you're playing uh, like a million colors in Modern or Extended or Legacy or uh, not Extended, sorry, but in uh, lots of formats that are standard, you can attack with a creeping tar pit, and then uh, after it's not blocked because it's unblockable, you can make it a 4-4. Four, four. Oh, so, um, is there any other cool thing you can do? With... The, the number of colors that you would be playing. Yes, you're playing uh, You're playing uh, r- rough, roughly a million. Yeah, that's a lot of mana to make it a 4-4. Four, four. Yes, activate this land for 3 mana, then we pay another 3 mana to, uh, to make it a 4-4 four, four after you didn't block it, and then you'll blow me out with Lightning Bolt, and uh, that's like the best time walk ever. I just, no, I just went to the bathroom. Are you guys still talking about that guild mage? Yes. The most boring guild mage. What? Anyway. To the so, bathroom uh, back quickly? Yeah. Did you want, you didn't wash your hands. Uh, no. I thought, I thought Sunhome guild mage was the most boring. Nobody's here, so. <laughs> you if, heard first Dutchcast exclusive, CJ doesn't wash his hands. If, if nobody can see you not washing your hands, then it doesn't count. Like, <laughs> if you wash your hands. <laughs> All so right. that's that's uh, tip number one for running your pre-release this weekend. You're dealing with a lot of people. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Well, it's it's cold as flu season, and you don't know where CJ's hands are. CJ, where are you running your pre-release at? Uh, I'm not running a pre-release. I'm working with I wash my hands at an event. I'm in, I'm in the comfort of my home right now. Yeah, he's just making his computer dirty. Yeah, it's already dirty. <laughs> hey, listen, we got a ton of cards to talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about Bane Alley Broker. Bane Alley Broker. Yes. He's weird. 
So he reads, uh, tap, draw a card, then exile a card from your hand face down. He has an ability that says you may look at cards exiled with Bane Alley Broker. And then also has the ability to return a card exiled with Bane Alley Broker to its owner's hand. I really like this card yeah. a lot. So here's something. I mean, here's oh, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, please go ahead. So it's it says in the in the FAQ. So it's got a line that says you may look at, at cards exiled with Bane Alley Broker. So normally when a card gets exiled face down, you can't look at it unless uh, the effect tells you that you can. Okay, like uh, I think Clone Shell was that an example of a card that exiled face down that yeah. you couldn't look at it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Then so that's it, still true. You you still can't look at it, with Clone Shell. Right. But this one right here says it says that you may look at cards exiled with main ally broker. So you can take that face down card, take a peek see of it. But in the FAQ, it says due to a recent rules change that even if this main ally broker goes away, you're still going to be able to look at that card, which I'm thinking this is the rules change that's going to be coming out in like a week or two. Because in the CR right now, I don't think that's the case. See, I thought it was the case, but I, I honestly didn't double check. Just uh, yeah, I, I have no insight on this at all. Um, I am glad that that change was made, but I'm not sure if that's a change that's already was uh, already existed or is something that's coming out with the newest rules update. We uh, we might be able to find that out. Maybe put it in the show notes. Nah. Do a little investigation. Um, but I I don't know the answer to this question. Yeah, cause, um, let's see here. Uh, okay, exile cards are by default, kept face down, can be examined by any player at any time, uh, or default, kept face up, cards exiled face down, can't be examined by any player except when instructions allow it. Oh. Um, it doesn't say anything about, yeah, so, um, it doesn't say anything about, so I'm thinking that this is a, this is probably a rules change that's coming out in the next, in the next CR update. Because if these cards that get exiled with, because I, I guess because it's only natural, right? Because these cards that are exiled with Bane Alley Broker, if Bane Alley Broker dies, those cards are just sitting out there in exile. And you used to be able to look at them, but now that Bane Alley's dead, you can't look at them anymore. Yeah, that's weird. That, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So just, I guess, just change the rules so that you can keep looking at them all you want. So the other interesting things about Bane Alley Broker broker is that if your opponent gained control of the broker they could then look at the cards because of that ability they could look at the cards that you exiled with bane alley broker uh although if they used its ability they those cards would go back to your hand because it's the owner's hand and finally if you flicker or reanimate or do anything to take the broker off the battlefield and bring it back any cards previously exiled no longer count and I guess, technically speaking, strictly under the rules today, you cannot look at them. Although it sounds like after the rules change, you will be able to look at them. But you'll have to exile new cards. Anything from the past, you won't be able to return. Or yeah, because it's, it's a different object. It might as well just be a different Kirstie Alley broker. Yes. Not sure why. Does it look like Kirstie Alley? Uh-uh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Next. Biomass Alley. mutation. Alley it says, it says uh, creatures you control become XX until end of turn, and X is uh, part of its mana cost. Yep. Somebody tell me how this works with Evolve and stuff. The plus one, plus one counters, so if X is five, all your dudes become five fives, and all your plus one, plus one counters, and all your giant growth effects and stuff like that still get tacked on. See, I got it right that time. Yep. Yeah. Um, X, can be, X can be zero, but if you do, you're probably going to have a bad time. Probably. No, I, I think of a situation in which you would do that. So let's say you have a bunch of guys with a ball, and they're they're all three threes because they're one ones with two two or two plus one plus one counters. 
as you have a 3-3 three, three in your hand to cast, so you biomass mutation for zero to make the ball two twos because of their two plus one plus one counters, and then you cast your 3-3. Three, three. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a situation. I mean, there's, there's or, definitely a legitimate reason to cast biomass mutation for zero. Or you're playing Legacy, and you cast Reigns of Power to swap creatures with your opponent, because Reigns of Power lets just basically you and an opponent, you swap all your dudes. Okay. And then you play Biomass Mutation for for zero, and all your opponent's dudes die, and then at the end of turn, you get all your guys back. Good. Right. So then anyway. That deck. You please do make it. that deck. I'm and then... never going to play it because it's horrible, <laughs> but you can do it. All right, Biovisionary. This one, I think, has been getting a little bit of buzz. I got a fun question about this card. All right, let me read it real quick. He says, uh, he's a creature. He says, at the beginning of the end step, if you control four or more creatures named Biovisionary, you win the game. Let's talk about it. All right, so here's, here's my question. And this is, this is really, this is really, Jess, this is for you. All right. So uh, we're playing Emperor, okay? I'm one of the flanks. I have a range of influence of one, all right? Nobody's left the game, so all six players are still in the game. I'm one of the flanks, range of influence of one. I play my fourth Biovisionary on my turn. Snap DQ. Assuming (laughs) that no... Well, I I have some clone effects. Assuming that no other spells or relevant actions are taken for the rest of the game, what happens? Uh, okay, so the way Biovisionary works is uh, is a triggered ability at the beginning of the end step. So if for some reason it were to trigger and then get stifled or something, it would have to wait until the next end step to, to trigger again. Uh, so in this case, since you have a range of influence of one in the situation you described, um, the players immediately to your right and left uh, would lose the game instead of win the game. In a multiplayer game, any effect that says you win the game is basically errated to say to instead say your opponents lose the game. And so you can only affect the opponents next to you. Uh, it, so in this case, the players to your left and right would die. How many players are playing here? Uh, it's all it's six, so it's an emperor game. Okay. Okay, so, so it's three and three. Three and three. Uh, so two of the two of the players. Uh, wait a minute. So an emperor. Let me make sure I'm understanding this format. Uh, you can only affect you can only affect your teammates, correct? No. You when you have a range of influence of one, uh, you can only go one seat. So you're one of the you're one of the flanks. I'm one of the flanks. I'm not the emperor. So okay, you okay, okay. Cause your own team to lose the game, like no, 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 no. So here, here we go. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not understanding the format. Okay, so so first off, uh, one of the things I wanna that. I love about this is when, when at the, at the beginning of end step, first off, it's any end step. It's not just yours. Okay. If you control four or more creatures named a biovisionary win the game. Okay. Each one is going to trigger. So you're going to get four win the game triggers. Oh crap. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. Totally right. So, so if you wow. stifle one, if you stifle one, whatever. <laughs> now, now it does have, our friend the intervening if clause so if in response to these four triggers going on the stack if one of them gets terrored or bolted or whatever then you just cackling counterpart another one yeah what's that you just cackling counterpart another one done easy yeah you just you just (laughs) you know get in another one real quick but yeah 
so intervening if clause, it takes four trigger. It takes, it counts, it counts four when it resolves. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the same four, because I guess you can so play your tackling counterpart. So even though you have a, a limited range of influence, the first trigger is going to kill one guy, the next trigger is going to kill another guy. No, 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 no. This, this is the, this is the trick. This is the obnoxious thing that, um, cause this sat down, uh, this actually, uh, uh, started cause I was trying to figure out a way to make the fact that there were four triggers actually matter. And what I came up with was a way to trick people into thinking that the four triggers matter. So in a game where you play range of limited range of influence, the range is like the opponents that you can see is set at the beginning of each turn. So what happens is me as the flank, my four triggers are going to go off. It's going to, uh, when I win the game in a multiplayer game, what that really means is uh, all of my opponents lose. My emperor is not an opponent, so he's unaffected by this. The guy next to me, the other flank, is also going to die. Uh, he's gonna he's gonna lose the game. It's the end of turn, you know. And then the the next person to take the turn is the general or the emperor for the other team. If he does nothing, which is the way I phrase the question is, no other spells or relevant actions are, are done for the rest of the game. What happens at the end of his turn? The biovisionaries are going to trigger again because they trigger at the beginning of any end step, and now he's going to lose. And when he loses in an emperor game, your emperor wins when the other emperor loses. So yay, your team wins. Okay, so now people are prepared for their emperor format pre-release. Yes, biovisionary. Yes, four-time trigger. That's actually the fun one is the fact that it triggers four times. Yeah, and it's proof that I hate the listeners that I'm going to leave all that in. <laughs> Nobody cares about No one cares about so don't leave that in. That's that's the only interesting thing there is that it triggers four times, which I totally missed when trying to answer. Yeah, I missed that too. But, but so here's the other thing is, and just touched on this: token copies do count. I don't know why people would think they didn't, but they do. Yep. Let's talk about Boros Charm, shall we? Boros Charm, yes, that's let's. The best charm. So it does by uh, far like it's ridiculous. Probably the best card in the set. Like it's amazing. So it does one of three things: Boros Charm deals four damage to target player. Permanence you control are indestructible this turn, or target creature gains double strike until end of turn. It's an instant. So yeah, let's... you know a card is good when the worst ability on it gives a creature double strike. Yeah. <laughs> At instant speed. We almost never get that. Right. Oh, you didn't block that? Blam! Double strike. So what happens if I choose the second mode and make all my creatures indestructible, and then I play another creature? Well, what, they're going to have a hard time getting rid of that indestructible creature. Right. This is true. Because now, this is good. I was gonna say this is something a lot of players may not understand. Uh, because players think of indestructible as an ability. Uh when it's actually there are abilities that say this creature is indestructible, but there's no keyword ability called indestructible. Right. Uh so it's not like we've added something to the card in any way. We've actually just modified the game rules, basically. Uh so the new creatures that come into play will still be affected by this modification. And there's a, uh, there's also another word that is similar to this, uh, uh, that's, that's like right under, if you look in the CR, like right under indestructible, there's also unblockable. Mm-hmm. So if creatures you control are unblockable this turn, okay, and then you play a, a, a hasty creature after that, well, it's going to be unblockable too. Yeah, actually, let's, let's segue that right into glaring spotlight real quick. 
since that's right. Uh, glaring spotlight reads creatures your opponents control with hexproof can't be the target spells or abilities you control, or can be the target of spells or abilities you control as though they didn't have hexproof, but that's not the relevant part. It has three mana, sacrifice, glaring spotlight, creatures you control gain hexproof until end of turn and are unblockable this turn. So, Jess, you want to talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, the, what I want to talk about is what's interesting about this is that you're doing two things with your creatures when you activate this ability. And the first one is you're giving them hexproof, and the second one is creatures are unblockable this turn. Um, and what's weird about this is that if you activate the ability and then after it resolves, you play a dude that has haste, that guy does not have hexproof, but he also can't be blocked, which seems counterintuitive. How do we get one without getting the other? Right. And uh, the reason is that that affects that set characteristics or state qualities of objects are, are different from you know, abilities. Like, they're not characteristics, but the ones that state the qualities of the objects, such as indestructible or, or unblockable, are different from things that, that are giving it plus X plus X or giving it an ability. One of these things just sets qualities of all objects for you, and the other one is affecting the permanent specifically. What I've generally found to be true is if you ask yourself the question, what layer does this fall in, and you don't, you can't find one, it's probably falls into that indestructible or unblockable category where it's still going to be true. And whereas getting hexproof falls into the layer six for adding and removing abilities. Right. Okay. And what Does about, that answer the question? Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. So what about the Boros Charm's third ability? Let's say I have a creature with first strike and after first strike damage for some reason, for some reason I wait after first strike damage, I give that creature double strike. Is it going to do damage? This, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's creatures that didn't deal damage during the first strike combat step or creatures with double strike. Or rather, not creatures that didn't deal damage, creatures that didn't have first strike. Oh, let's see here. It is for creatures that didn't have first strike or creatures that have double strike. <laughs> I'll look that up. <laughs> yes, they do do damage. But yeah, yeah I, do. I did have to double check. <laughs> So what Brian was trying to say, it, it's the um, the only creatures that assign combat damage in that step, so the regular combat damage step, are the remaining attackers and blockers that had neither first strike nor double strike as the first combat damage step began as well. So that would exclude it, but it says as well as the remaining attackers and blockers that currently have double strike. So it will indeed do damage. Okay, so it, it says no and then it says yes? Yes. Okay. All right, let's talk about Burning Tree Emissary. He seems cool. No, he doesn't. He's 2-2-2. Two, two, two. Two mana, two, two. Uh, and when Burning Tree Emissary enters the battlefield, it says, add red green to your mana pool. This is not an a mana ability. Somebody tell me why. Uh, what was the card? Uh, it's a triggered ability that isn't triggered by a mana ability. Yeah. So the, 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 the criteria for uh, a mana ability are that it must either be an activated ability that does not have a target and creates mana, uh, or it must be a triggered ability that was triggered by a mana ability. For example, if something says whenever you tap this for mana, add other or more different mana to your mana pool, that would be a, uh, a mana ability, but Burning Tree Emissary is not. Right. Uh, Death Red Shaman is an, is an example of an activated ability that makes mana, but isn't a mana ability. Right, because it targets. Because it targets. All right. Next, Diluvian Primordial. He's a 5-5 flying avatar creature. When Diluvian Primordial enters the battlefield for each appointment, opponent, you may cast up to one target instant or sorcery card from that player's graveyard without paying its mana cost. If a card cast this way would be put into a graveyard this turn, exile it instead. 
So a few cool things about this one. A, obviously it lets you cast the spell right now when the trigger is resolving. And so it, it doesn't look at the card type. So you can cast a sorcery while the trigger is resolving or an instant technically. Like technically you shouldn't have priority to even cast an instant right there. Uh, if you target a spell with X in the mana cost, X has to be zero. And if you targeted a spell with Overlord, since, since you're using an alternate cost, which in this case is paying it without or casting it without paying its mana cost, you cannot use other alternate costs. So you wouldn't be able to overload the spell or anything like that. But you can do additional costs. You can do additional costs. Like, so you could kick like, it, but you can't overload it, which makes no sense at all. You could buy back. Ooh, Ooh. Wait, hold on. No, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> I think that's going to put it back in the owner's hand. I know that would be that wouldn't be good at all. And yeah, but the other interesting thing is you could you could cipher the card because it this card uh, the primordial only cares about the card going to the graveyard. So you could exile it and cipher it onto one of your creatures. That's pretty sweet. Let's talk about Ember Beast. Ember Beast is uh, he's just like that goblin Mog Funky, I think. Yeah. Yep. He says he costs three and he has better power and toughness. Yep. He says. Ember Beast can't attack or block alone. But what's cool about that, if you had two of the Ember Beasts out at the same time, you could actually attack with them both. That's pretty sweet. It's really, like, it's kind of weird to think about, but uh, and without going too deep into how combat works, basically, you just, you look at your set of attackers, make sure you're fulfilling all the restri- uh, restrictions, which in this case is can't attack or block alone. You have two attackers, they're both attacking, neither one of them is attacking alone. So there you go. It'll work. You've got to throw a wrench in your plans. If you have two Ember Beasts and somebody says all your creatures must attack and enable, do they have to attack? Yeah. Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. yeah it's that's that's kind of one of those weird, you know, weird situations where it, it it. Actually, no, that's not that's not a weird situation at all. No, that one's not as weird. It's when you have the Grizzly Bear plus Ember Beast, and, and it's like. And then it says like the Ember Beast uh, must attack, and then it's like, oh, well, it's gonna it's gonna drag that grizzly bear, the yeah. bear cub, along with it. Bear cub does not want to go. Yeah, you're, 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 coming, you're coming with me, whether you want to or not. No, I don't want to go. Let's talk about experiment one. Everyone's favorite human ooze. I love the simic creature types. I know. I love shark, human ooze. I love shark crab, whatever his name is. <laughs> Who cares? Crabfish. Yeah. Uh, he's a one one with evolve. And he has an ability to remove two plus one plus one counters from experiment one, and you get to regenerate experiment one. So he can get really weird if he already has damage marked on him. When you go to try to regenerate him? Yeah. When you guys want to talk about that? Uh, okay. So let's say your, your experiment one is, I'm going to say it has a five, uh, uh, plus, uh, no, let's say it's, it's a five, five. And you bolt, okay, so it's, it's a 5-5 five five now and it has, uh, three damage marked on it. Okay, then you go, uh, uh, to shock it, alright? If you then go, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna regenerate my dude, and I remove those two, cause removing the two plus one plus one counters is a cost. So I'm gonna remove those two plus one plus one counters to put the regeneration shield on it. So that, that ability goes on the stack, okay? But, uh, uh state-based actions are checked, and it's now a, uh, a 3-3 with three damage marked on it, and it's gonna go to the graveyard. It's gonna die. And I know I have a player who's going to ask me about this, and he's going to ask me, can I just remove the other two counters and regenerate it again? Yeah, no, you don't. And the answer is no. No, you can't. It doesn't work. Priority anymore. Oh, it's already, it's already, whoosh. So, how about that new Gideon, huh? Do you think people have noticed we're going in alphabetical order yet? 
Uh, probably. Yeah. We have astute listeners. I'm sure they noticed. So, New Gideon. He has a couple of relevant abilities. Uh, his plus one says to put a loyalty counter on Gideon, champion of justice, for each creature target opponent controls. And his zero mana, or zero mana, zero loyalty ability says until the turn, Gideon, champion of justice, becomes an indestructible human soldier creature with power and toughness, each equal to the number of loyalty counters on him. He's still a planeswalker. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to him this turn. So what's fun about him is uh, we get a new Gideon to ask the old Gideon rules question about, which is if damage can't be prevented this turn, what happens if Gideon takes damage? And, and there's a card that can do it. It's that, what's it called? Skullcrack or something like that? Three mana or three damage to a target player? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happens in that situation? So this is this is kind of the the weird thing. So so planeswalkers. So if if Gideon is a creature, you know whatever whatever power and toughness. Uh, what is he equal to the number of loyalty counters? Well, let's just let's look at old. So a planeswalker has if it turns into a creature, it has a power and toughness and works like a creature in that respect. It also, you know, still continues to work like a planeswalker. So if it takes, if it is a creature and takes damage, okay, it is both going to lose loyalty counters and it is going to have damage marked on it. So it's possible to, for it to normally, let's, let's remove indestructibility from, it's possible for it to die two ways, which is if it gets lethal damage, or if all of its counters, uh, all of its loyalty counters get removed through damage. So in this particular case, he becomes indestructible human soldier creature with power and toughness each equal to the number of loyalty counters on him. So a good example of what you just described uh, would be, I'm sorry to jump in here, but I'm sorry to throw right. this out. Uh, the previous edition of Gideon, which came in with six loyalty counters and you could bump him up to eight, say, uh, you know, Gideon insults your mother, all your creatures must attack this turn. Mm. So let's say they play Gideon, you attack him, he goes down to five, and then they would activate their Gideon and they'd swing at you. And you play Combust, which deals five damage to target white or blue creature and that damage can't be prevented. You could Combust him and players would go, okay, well, he's a six-six. This is true. He's a 6-6 six, six with 6 damage marked on it. But he's still a planeswalker, so he's still going to lose loyalty equal to the amount of damage that he took. And he's going to be at zero loyalty, and as a planeswalker with zero loyalty, he'd get put in the graveyard. Yep. And, that, and, that, to, and that's exactly what I was wanted to touch on here. So similarly, uh, you could have him lose loyalty using that Skullcrack card. Uh, oh, and his first ability. So the first ability, like activating it, puts a loyalty counter on immediately. And then it's a it's an ability that uses the stack. So you'll add like one loyalty ability count, or counter, and then you have to have the ability resolve. And it has to go through the normal process. It could be countered or whatever before you get to add all the other loyalty abilities loyalty counters i keep saying ability you'll note it's funny because later on in this list of cards like we're in the g's now but later it starts skipping letters a lot more significantly all right let's talk about the guardian of the gateless they keep referencing like these these guildless people but we don't we don't ever really see them i, I don't know it's, it, it feels like the story's building up to it but then it's just going to be like nip visits doing something wacky all right anyway guardian of the gateless has the ability, he has a bunch of abilities, but the relevant one is Guardian of the Gateless can block any number of creatures. So, someone explain to me, if I have him block, or her, probably her, yeah, all angels and magic are female, except for that one time spiral one. Uh, if I have her block three bear cubs, 
I guess I should read her other ability. So she has this ability of whenever Guardian of the Gate list blocks, it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn for each creature it's blocking. So it's blocking Rampage? Yeah, it's, yeah. That's kind of how I thought about it too. You've seen Rampage. You've seen Arc Rampage. (laughs) Now blocking Rampage. Blampage. Blampage. Uh, so how do how do I how does the damage assignment work there? Like how how does any of that happen? Oh. So, so what, do you, what do you mean? How does any of that happen? He, he's, ask, he's asking basically like we we've gone over the the whole order of when a single cre- attacker gets blocked by multiple blocking creatures. Yeah. So he's asking basically now what happens when we throw our three three angel in front of the horde of one one tokens? Mm-hmm. Okay, it basically works the same way. Okay, so on an attacking creature, when a when a creature attacks okay, and is blocked by three creatures, I basically say this one's number one, this one's number two, this one's number three, and I have to deal lethal to number one before I can deal lethal to number before I can start dealing damage to number two, and I have to deal lethal to it before I can move on to lethal uh, to creature number three. So I basically form a line, and I just have to like plow through that line. And keep going. The other question is, is if let's say I take my Guardian of the Gateless and I block, you know, three dudes with Guardian of the Gateless, but I also block one of those guys with somebody else, who chooses the order first? Is it the attacker or the blocker? Or defending player, I should say. Attacking player or defending player? Oh, this is so, so seldomly random. I think the attacking player... Just... It is the attacking player. Yes, yeah, definitely the attacking player. They they decide the damage assignment order first, and then the blo- uh, the defending player will... Uh, it's so decide. seldom. <laughs> this is, this has come up exactly never. Uh, <laughs> we have Guardian the Gateless now, though. Like, it could sure. be... It could be her, and then that clearly, four that this can't is alone. Yeah, clearly, this is obviously going to come up pre-release. Hey, let's talk about this high priest dependence, okay? He's pretty cool. He reads, "Whenever high priest dependence is dealt damage, you may destroy target non-land permanent." So my question is, uh, I attack Brian, and he blocks with those same three bear cubs. Do I get to destroy three non-land permanents now because it's being dealt damage by three two twos? Maybe no. The answer to this question is no, because the Why? damage is dealt simultaneously. The answer to this question is I wouldn't be attacking with a 1-1 one, because one, I'd be giving him, like, enchantments and stuff like that so that I'd be able now, to reuse them over and over again. Well, you still get the, to destroy something. On the other hand, if I were to play Boros Charm and make him indestructible, and then he gets dealt damage by something with first strike and then by something with regular combat damage, that counts as getting dealt damage twice. Yeah. Uh, now, this actually goes back into the last card. The one thing I wanted to mention about Guardian of the Gateless okay. is uh, it has a whatever Guardian of the Gateless blocks ability. It gets plus one, plus one for each. It's only a turn for each creature that it's blocking. But what I wanted to point out is it, is it does get plus one, plus one for each creature that it's blocking, but when it blocks, it always only triggers once. It won't trigger for each creature that it's blocking. So in the example you gave where it's where it's blocking three different creatures, we don't get three different triggers of this ability. Right. Yeah. We so only get one because it blocks. They could have functionally worded this uh, almost. It would, it would almost work the same as whenever Guardian of the Gateless blocks a creature, it gets plus one, plus one. Yes. Right. Yeah, and the only thing that that would have done is made Modo really annoying. Yeah, it would have right. multiple triggers. 
they could have done the same thing with uh, the high priest of penance like, to make it you know double up. They could have said whatever it's dealt damage by my creature. So let's talk about rust scare real quick since it's in the same category. It's a four five and it says whenever rust scare becomes blocked, you may destroy target artifact or enchantment defending player controls. Exact same thing. You, it could be blocked by a hundred creatures, but you're only getting one trigger because the event of becoming blocked only happened once. Yes. It was worded. It said whenever it becomes blocked by a creature. Yes. Then you get to go smash happy with those artifacts. All right. So this next one, I think it's fun. It involves two cards. Lazav, Demir Mastermind, who is a 3-3 legendary creature, shapeshifter, with hexproof. And he reads, whenever a creature card is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, you may have Lazav, Demir Mastermind, become a copy of that card. Except his name is still Lazav, Demir Mastermind. It's legendary in addition to its other types, and it gains hexproof and this ability. So, he just kind of keeps on being Lazav, but he, he gets a copy. He gets to copy everything else about the creature. Then, we have Giant Adaphage, which is a 7-7 insect with trample. It's green, and it reads, Whenever Giant Adaphage deals combat damage to a player, put a token onto the battlefield that's a copy of Giant Adaphage. So, here's my fun question. Say the, uh, let's let's use names. Abby has Lazav out, and Nate has Giant Adaphage die. So, Abby chooses to have Lazav copy Giant Adaphage. This seems like kind of a nombo. Yes, because here's the next part. This is... Gonna not work out so good for Lazav. <laughs> yeah, but Abby's feeling great right now. So she attacks with Lazav, and uh, Nate can't block because he's his Adaphage just died, so he's sad. What happens when the when the so Lazav has the Adaphage trigger? What happens when the Adaphage trigger goes off? He gets a, a, a copy a, of Lazavaphage. What? But the trigger is, for Adaphage says. It says it puts a token on the battlefield that's a copy of Giant Adaphage. Yeah, the copy so whenever, of this. Whenever an ability on a card references itself by name, it is referring to that card, whatever its name is. Yeah. So so let's say, I mean, if you had a Giant Adaphage, you attack and and the trigger goes on the stack, and then in response, you make Giant Adaphage a copy of something else, you're going to get whatever that something else is. Um, so, like, it... it the whatever a card refers to itself is referring to itself by name, and so if, if if any card gains that ability or becomes a copy of that creature, it's that ability refers only to itself, not to other copies of of, of that card. Yep. And, and then the other relevant thing here is if if a copy effect, uh, what's the right word? Is like sets certain characteristics, or or actually doesn't set certain characteristics. Like in this case, it's not changing the name; it's keeping the creature legendary, um, and it's keeping those abilities then those effects, too, are also copyable. So that's why you're getting a copy of this Lazav Adaphage Mastermind Mix thing. That's so obnoxious. Oh, <laughs> I love yeah, it. How do you come up that. with these? This is, that's really this is... good, CJ. <laughs> well, I saw I saw Lazav, or I saw Adaphage, honestly, and I wasn't even going to talk about him because I was like, eh, we kind of hit all that. And then I saw Lazav, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Make that sound again? Ew. Ew. Uh, we only have two more cards to talk about. What? I know, right? All right. That's what I'm well, saying. You do just, this. We start just jumping up in letters because well, the FAQ is just repeating itself. Soul Ransom. Soul Ransom is kind of an interesting card. It's a uh, two blue black. It's an aura. Enchant creature. It says you control enchanted creature. And then it has this weird ability. I haven't seen abilities like this in some time. Uh, discard two cards. Soul Ransom's controller sacrifices it. It being Soul Ransom. Uh, then draws two cards. Only in a, any opponent may activate this ability. So, step one. This card, this card is is got a lot uh, a lot going for it. <laughs> it's got a lot of things happening. It's got a lot of things happening. 
So basically, so one of the, one of the things is when it says Soul Ransom's controller sacrifices it, it is refer it is referring to the Soul's Ransom, not the creature. Right. Then they get to draw the two cards, and so any opponent may activate this ability. Uh, you can do that at any time. If you have a way, and if they have an additional way of sacrificing the creature that's enchanted with Soul uh, Soul Ransom, uh, good stuff's gonna happen because they're going to. You have uh, still discarded your two cards. Yep, because that's the cost. Uh, yep, and then the ability, the effect is going to try to happen as much as is going to try and do as much as it can. So it's gonna say, "Hey, you need to sacrifice soul soul ransom." Well, it's probably already gone due to state based actions, and then you are going to get to draw two cards. Yes, so that's good news for you. Yeah, and they can try to activate it again in response, but. Oh, no, they can't even, because it's gone, because we sacrificed the creature. Right. Uh, and also, I want to mention that this does not work well with Loxodon Smiter. So the Loxodon Smiter has an ability that reads, if a spell or ability an opponent controls causes you to discard Loxodon Smiter, put it on the battlefield instead of putting it in your graveyard. So people might think, like, you could di- uh, you could discard the Smiter as part of this ability's cost, but that's not a spell or ability an opponent controls making you discard it. That's you activating an ability of a aura your opponent controls, making you discard it. So, locks out on Smiter is not going to place that with entering the battlefield. Sorry. I'd like, like to jump in here with uh, a note about Gruel Charms, since we're on the topic of okay, sure. effects. Um, Gruel Charms, I think second mode, says uh, you gain control of all permanents you own. Which is kind of random. Yeah, it is. But it, in uh, in Soul Ransom's case, so, so they t- play a Soul Ransom on your creature, your giant Adiphage, for example. And they take control of it. Uh, after that resolves, you play Gruel Charm. Even though there's a Soul Ransom on that creature, you still get it back. Yeah. Um, and you'll get it back forever. What's really funny about this is that your opponent still controls the Soul Ransom. Yeah. So they can't activate that ability. No. No. Yeah, that's... You can, though. Yeah. Yes, yes, you can if you want if them to draw really some cards. To. Maybe you're milling them, you know? And then you're like, ah, oh, if only I could get them to draw two cards, I'd win this game. Only I could get... get so you, get, you draw your entire deck minus one card. Or you could discard... Then you, then you activate that ability to discard all of your cards, stacking them on top of each other, and then you ship turn. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, actually, <laughs> you could, like, discard six cards and make them draw six cards and then, like, lose. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> if they have six cards left in their deck. That's that's uh, even that's even less likely than happening than my uh biovisionary uh emperor four of question. Hey, I don't know. These these are the Demir color. Well, okay, well they would be Demir, not you. Hey, let's hey. talk about Thespian Stage. Thespian Stage. Thespian All Stage. Right. Tap. Add one mana to your mana pool. Or two tap. Thespian Stage becomes a copy of Target Land and gains this ability. So it's it's basically a Vesuva almost mm-hmm. uh, that you can that you can change up. Where you're constantly like, no, I want. Hey, you've got a stomping ground. I want a stomping ground too. You've got a, a, a we'll say a Urborg Tomb of Yogmoth. I want one. T- oh, oh, you just destroyed oh, all the Urborg Tomb. Of I just destroyed all the Urborgs because they're legendary. Oh, wait, I just realized that it's two mana tap. Thespian Sage becomes a copy of Target Land. Yeah. See, you can't even like 
get well, me. Well, you do it at the end of your opponent's turn, and then... Oh, oh, it is not until end of turn. Okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> I was like, okay. what? What's the yeah. point? <laughs> so, so, so something else that, that might not work so good if you copy it is Cavern of Souls. Because Caverns of Souls is, uh, as it comes into play, you choose a creature type, and then you get to tap to add mana of any color for that type. Turns out, uh, if you have a Thespian stage in play, and you activate its ability to copy the Cavern of Souls, uh, you didn't really make a choice when it entered, you know, back when it entered the battlefield, and that's not something that's copied. Uh, so you don't get that. So, uh, oh. so Cavern of Soul just kind of taps for color. Your copy of Cavern of Soul just kind of taps for colorless. It will tap for mana of any color. You just can't use it on anything. Oh, is that? Alright, I need to read the card. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, tap, yeah, add so, one. Yeah, go ahead. I uh, was just gonna say, you, you, uh, bonus policy question here. Ooh. Somebody asked me. I'm excited. Um, so I have a Thespian stage. And uh, I use it to copy Cavern of Souls, and, and I don't understand how Thespian Stage works for Cavern of Souls. So I use it to copy Cavern of Souls. You go, that's fine. And I go, I'll name Beast. Are you required to, to point out that I can't I can't actually use it for Beast? Uh, man. Good question. Nobody has a response. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> just think it's like, it's like, I'm naming Beast. I mean, can't I say that for anything? Can't I play an elf and be like, I named Beast? I don't know. I was was actually asked by somebody that was watching the spoilers. They were like, does this work? I was like, oh, my God. Um, So I wanted your opinion on it. What do you guys think? Is it one of those that goes back and forth? Um, How about this? How about this? If you're listening to the show, tell me what you think. Send us an email and say, hey, this should work. This shouldn't work. You have to remind him. You don't have to remind him. Uh, This guy's fine. uh, Or, you know, kick his butt out of the store. One of the two. Send me an answer. Yeah. And uh, we'll see what everybody says. You can send those answers to judgecast.gmail.com. You can. You can also, you can also see, if you haven't checked it out already, uh, you can see our website now actually has stuff on it. MTGJudgeCast.com has the current episode of JudgeCast on it on its front page. You can always check that out. Uh, hopefully we'll have more content in the future as well. Yeah, let's talk about that for a quick second. So we want to start using MTGJudgeCast.com to bring the podcast to the listeners. Now, one thing is that we are not going to stop using MTGCast at any point in the future. So if you're, if you're getting it from MTGCast, you can keep on getting it from MTGCast. If you want to get it from mtgjudgecast.com, one of the advantages will be is I am able to upload them in a little bit higher, uh, what's the word, compression rate? Quality. Yeah, quality. Quality is a good word. And more free, uh, and more faster. Uh, and faster. a little quicker. So like this, this show. Much will, faster. Yes, much faster. This show will be like our inaugural. Uh, show that's released on both simultaneously. So for those of you, you know, still using MTGCast, go ahead. You can keep doing that. But if you want to switch over to MTG JudgeCast, that is an option available to you. And it should be ready to go by the time you hear this episode. Awesome. All right. So you guys ready to dive into the emails? Yes. Not about diving, but yes. Yes. So in order time. to keep... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> in order to keep... Uh, this show a little shorter and mail time easier to edit. Yeah, we got it. Right. <laughs> We're only going to answer mail that was about the pre-release. So next show we'll we'll catch up on any other remaining mail. So our first mail comes from Jeff. He says, "Hello, Judge Cast. He's a level zero from Arizona, working to become level one, and got recruited by the local store that he plays at to help judge their pre-release. He wanted to know what are some good resources or advice for judging a pre-release event and being comf- confident in new interactions and mechanics." Uh, he says he understands the general rules of the game to the point where he can pass L1 practice tests 
Uh, and it's more getting comfortable with the new interactions and helping the TO head judge to create a good pre-release environment. So one thing is uh, this episode of JudgeCast right now. Yes. And related to that, the FAQ, which this episode is based on. So, so for, for good resources uh, or advice in judging, so one of them, and this, this is a mistake that I've made twice this episode, so you can tell that this is definitely important, is read the card. Yes. Don't just assume that you know what it does. So take take the time when you get called over to the table and you're asked a question, you know, pick up the card, read the words on it. Don't just don't just assume that you know what the card does. Read it. That's that's one of that's one of the big ones as far as helping with rulings. Well, that's you know. really correct. But one of the questions you asked is uh, is being confident in new interactions and mechanics. And being confident will get you so far, but you also need to appear confident when you give these rulings. Like these players aren't conf- confident in how these rules work either. Uh, so they, they may not know. And if you pick up the card and you go, well, uh, uh, I think it works this way. Nobody's going to believe it. I put any stock in what you have to say. If you pick up the card and you go, hold on, let me make sure I read this card. They're all new. I want to make sure you give you the right answer. You read the card and then you pause for a moment and then you give them the right answer confidently and decisively. They'll believe you much more than if you give the same answer in a wishy-washy fashion. Right. So ums and hums and I thinks don't do so good. How, however, it also helps if you if you just set set a demeanor like when you when you get up there and you're like, hey guys, because hopefully it's at a store. A lot of these guys are your friends, and if you talk to them like you would talk to your friends. In the sense of, you know, like, hey guys, we're gonna have a great time. There's a lot of fun, exciting new cards out there. And you just kinda, you know, talk to the players like you would your buddies. Then that's gonna, that helps, that helps, uh, your confidence factor a lot too. You're confident talking to your friends. You're not, you know, you don't have like the, the hunched shoulders and the down, you know, the head down, maybe the eyes down or anything like that. You look people in the eyes, you talk in a clear voice. So there's one thing I want to throw out here is that I don't know about Jeff's situation specifically, but a lot of judges that get recruited by their local game store to help judge the pre-release are judging and playing at the same time. And this is fine. It's allowed at pre-releases. And in a small pre-release, it's definitely something you can manage. But it's a good idea to let your opponent know, hey, I might have to get up and answer some questions. I'm not trying to be rude, but I'm helping judge the event. If I have to get up, it takes a minute. We'll get a time extension so you don't have to worry about us running out of time because of that. Just because some players feel like it's not fair. They didn't get as much time or whatever. Yeah. And and the last thing is is I suggested that he looks over the judging at regular document because I think, I think some people just don't know it exists. Absolutely. Yeah. Judging at regular AL. Uh, is a document you need to read uh, to become level one, and it's it's very very helpful in running the events. And if you have the time, I also suggest looking through the MTR, the Magic Tournament rules, discuss what you can and uh, or how, how tournaments should be run. And more importantly for this situation, the difference in responsibilities between the head judge and the tournament organizer, because the, the tournament organizer is actually the person that, that, that recruited him, not him. He's not the TO in this situation. The guy who's recruiting him at the store is the TO, and they'll have different responsibilities, and he needs to know what the difference is. Um, and one one last point. You might have heard, like, some in some public speaking things that they tell you it might help to envision your audience naked. <sighs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
<laughs> that will probably send you into such a tailspin. <laughs> so our next mail comes from uh, Chris Meyer, who sent us quite a few questions about cards before the before we had the FAQ, which you know we try not. I, all right, I answered them, but I it's always with the disclaimer that hey, the FAQ isn't out yet, so everything I'm saying might be wrong. So, Brian, I'm going to throw this first one at you. I haven't even read this one yet, so... It's fine. So he asks about Signal the Clans, which is an instant. It says, search your library for three creature cards or reveal them. If you reveal three cards with different names, choose one of them at random and put that card into your hand. Shuffle the rest into your library. He wants to know what happens if you find, you know, three cards with the same name or two cards with the same name and one card with a different name. Okay. So this card right here, uh, search your library for three creature cards and reveal them. If you reveal three cards, so you're going to try to do as much as you can. Like if you can't, if you can't find three creature cards, then sure, you can search your library for two creature cards or one creature card. But then it says if you reveal three cards with different names, choose one of them at random and put that card into your hand. So if you don't choose, if you don't reveal three cards, with uh with different names um they all kind of get shuffled back into your library yeah it's basically a two mana shuffle your library yeah so so if you if you don't do three I mean, basically you're you're gonna get a free shuffle and you get nothing nothing but a shuffle all right and since jess is the big cypher fan the next question is about cypher uh this is a big one that came up ever since cypher was spoiled but basically if you encode onto an animated key room what happens when the key room stops being a creature? You have a non-creature permanent with a spell encoded on it. Yeah. And then uh, when, when it becomes animated again and it attacks and deals combat damage to a player, the trigger still applies. It doesn't remove the ability when it, sets its, when it becomes a creature again. It's not overriding that ability unless the ability that made it a creature says it has no abilities. Yep. And his final question related to that is, is it is it copyable that a creature... Uh, has something encoded on it. So his question is, if he has a bear cub encoded with stolen identity, and stolen identity is the one that puts uh, puts a token on the battlefield that's a copy of target artifact or creature, if he has that bear cub, deal combat damage to a player and then make a copy of itself, Does the is the copy now encoded? No. No. Exactly, because that's, you know... In the list of in the list of things that are copyable characteristics of creatures, uh, fact of encoding is not one of them. All right, let's go on to his second question with more, or second mail with more questions. Uh, he asks if you can giant growth in response to uh, evolve, but we've already discussed that. Yep. He also asks, he asks like, how does evolve work if if um, with other into the into the battlefield effects? So you have experiment one out, which is just a one one with evolve, and he and the player casts hunt masters of the fells, which is a two two. And he also has these, uh, the ability, whenever this creature enters the battlefield or transforms into Huntmaster of the Fells, put a 2-2 green wolf creature token onto the battlefield and you gain 2 life. So, his question is, is there any way that you can stack those abilities so that you have the wolf come in also and end up with a 3-3 experiment 1? We pretty much already answered yeah, this Yeah, we question. pretty much already covered this in depth. And, uh, the, the answer, the answer is no with a slight addendum. Uh, and that is that if you f- immediately follow that up, uh, by casting, uh, what is the card that transforms all humans? Uh, Moon Mist? Moon Mist, thank you. Uh, then you actually have a 4-4 Ravager of the Fells with the trigger on the stack. And there is a way to stack it to get a 3-3, but that's the only way I can think <laughs> of to make that work. That's pretty clever. Uh, I like that. The, the, the rest of the time, there's no way to stack it, to, as we've already discussed, to, to make that happen. All right. 
Uh, and his next questions, they're not about anything for the pre-release, but they're in the same email, so we're going to go ahead and knock them out. It's about Spell Snare. Spell Snare reads, Counter Target Spell will convert to mana cost 2. So first off, he's confirming that if you cast a Fireball with X equal to 1, while that Fireball is on the stack, can Spell Snare counter it? The answer is yes. Uh, absolutely, yes. As, as an interesting aside on that, if you flashback Devil's Play for 1 from the graveyard, even though you spent 4 mana on it, you can still Spell Snare as well. Yeah. Uh, and kind of related to that, though, he has uh, a player Miracles Bonfire of the Damned and casts it with X equal to 1. Can you spell snare it? Ah, uh, actually, you cannot. No. So the mana cost of Bonfire of the Damned is XX red. Right. So if X is 1, then the converted mana cost of Bonfire of the Damned is 3. 1 plus 1 plus 1. All right. Good, good. One more. Ah, uh, this one's crazy. So <laughs> this is from Andrew Wilson. Okay, first off, he asks about uh, having a Cypher card in the graveyard and flashing it back, but Jess already talked about that in links. We don't talk about that. So this next one, it's for you, Brian. You're the one who loves this so much. Yeah, and so he asks, second, if a creature that has a spell encoded on it and the creature phases out, will the spell be encoded when the creature phases back in? And the answer is yes. It's still the same object. Now, this is, this is, the answer's no. this, what's that? The answer's no. Answer's no? Yeah. Why is it no? Weren't you in chat today? Come on, man. So the, no, the, it's, it's yes. The spell will no longer be encoded on the creature. 100% positive. So let's, let's Why talk do you say about that? it real quick. Uh, let me, because nope. it's still the same object. It's definitely still the same object, but okay. Now you're getting you're getting you're getting the the whole thing with like sower of temptation confused because when when like sower phases phases out, then the the creature goes back to its controller because sower of temptation has an ability with a duration, okay, and the control effect is dependent on that duration. Yeah, and when it phases out, it can't see like the game can't see that 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 card the sower anymore. So it just kind of like freaks out and doesn't know what to do. So it just says, "Okay, I'm done," and, and it goes back to the to the controller. But it's 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 it works the same way. It works basically the same way as like haunt does, and haunt works. All right, so let me let me read this rule to you. Okay, seven hundred two dot nine c seven c nine seven c. The card with cipher remains encoded on the chosen creature as long as the card with Cypher remains exiled and the creature remains on the battlefield. Uh, the card remains encoded on that object even if it changes control or stops being creature as long as it remains on the battlefield. When it phases out, the game can no longer see the creature on the battlefield. So as far as it's concerned, it left the battlefield. If you can have your Empire dis- or Emperor discussion, I can have this phasing discussion. What? That's fine. Yeah. I'm very interested in the rule that says that, that it won't see it. Like, that's all I want to... Yeah. Okay. Like, I know... Because phasing doesn't change zones. I got, I got it for you here. Uh-huh. 702.24D. Sure. The phasing event doesn't actually cause a permanent to change zones or control, which, which is what we know. Even though it's treated as though it's not on the battlefield and not under its controller's control while it's phased out. So that's basically it right there. It's treated as if it's not on the battlefield, which means the duration of something being on the battlefield ends. Uh, sure. there, there is some other text here. And, uh, and the last part sounds like it applies, but it doesn't actually apply. Uh, zone change triggers don't trigger when a permanent phases in or out. That's fine. Counters remain on a permanent while it's phased out. That's fine. Effects that check a phased-in permanent's history won't treat the phasing event as having caused the permanent to leave or enter the battlefield or its controller's control. But this effect isn't checking its history. It's checking its its duration. 
Do you give me an example of an effect that would check its history? No. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering about. <laughs> I don't have, yeah, I, I tried to come up with one. Like, what does that refer to if it's not referring to this? Like, that's what I want to know. I, I think it kind of means if... All right, fine. All right, that's all my emails. <laughs> So if you have phase and come up at your pre-release, you are ready now. Yeah, that's all the emails we're going to talk about this episode. So do you guys have anything, any final words you want to say? No. No. All right. If you want to contact us, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. You can now visit us at mtgjudgecast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash judgecast, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast. All right, listeners, I hope you all have a fun time at your pre-release. I hope this episode was helpful in some way, shape, or form. If you need more information, you can consult your local library or go read the FAQ, which we will have a, lo- a note to, a link to in the show notes. And on that, thanks again for listening. My name is Cedar Trader. I keep it fair. I'm Jess. I keep it fun. I'm Brian Perlman. I keep it based out. And I'm just whiffing all over the place this episode. Oh. <laughs> I think we pretty much, like you and I both, uh, like I think we pretty much do this every time we have a pack episode. Like we, we just mess it all up. That's okay. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Well, we just need to make sure that uh, CJ's uh, Gideon comment makes it into the final episode and then we'll all, be, we'll all have our... Oh, that one will be strangely missing, but the rest will be in there. <laughs> <laughs>